Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. It's good to be here. I'd like to welcome everyone to the services this morning. We appreciate you that are visiting with us. We'd like to welcome you especially. Uh, we'll definitely want to invite you back to our evening service, which will be tonight at 6 p.m. If you recall, back in June... If you recall back in June, we studied the betrayal of Jesus Christ. A few months ago, we studied another topic uh, in this series titled Washing Feet, and we studied the service aspect of washing others' feet, along with our need to let our barriers down and allow others to wash our feet. Today, I want to conclude this mini-series with a deeper study into another one of the major topics that we are introduced to during these events that led up to the betrayal of Jesus Christ. We'll start this morning with a quick recap um, of the previous sermons, of the previous lessons that we studied. You know, our Lord and Savior, our Messiah, was publicly betrayed and he was sent to his death. And as horrific as this story may be, it's important that we remember that this was all part of God's plan. During the study that we had back in June, you'll recall a few important aspects. You'll remember that Judas was chosen by Jesus Christ to be a disciple and to travel with him and to study with him and to learn from him. But as you will recall, Judas had a flaw. The scriptures tell us that Judas was in charge of the apostles' money. They also tell us that he was a thief and would help introduce himself to the money that he kept. Uh, for the apostles' expenses. And his love for money played a big part in his betrayal. Jesus knew, Jesus had, uh, Judas had already he met with the chief priest, they had already came up with a plan, and Judas had agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So they came up with a plan so that Jesus could be captured secretly without a lot of attention. And as we fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane, You can click on the PowerPoint, Jeff. We fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is there with his disciples and he's praying. The scriptures say that he began to be sorrowful and he was deeply distressed. So during these deep prayers and difficult times, Jesus took over. Uh, Jesus looks over and he sees the disciples sleeping and he began speaking to them. We'll pick up in Matthew 26 and 47. And it says, And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer, now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And with this single kiss, Judas betrayed Jesus. Now back in August, we studied washing feet and our need to serve and assist others. You'll recall during the study that I asked a question regarding what your preparations would entail if you knew that you were going to die tonight. And during that evaluation, I gave you six hours notice. And with that advance warning, you had some time. It was limited, but you had a few hours to take care of a few things. It's important for us to remember 
that Jesus knew his final hours on the earth was upon him. He knew that he was going to be betrayed and he was going to die. He knew this. John 13 and 1 tells us, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his final hour had come, that he should depart this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John tells us that Jesus knew that he was going to die. He knew that his time on this earth had come to an end. And knowing that he could have been worshipped in his final hours, that people would have came from faraway lands to see Jesus and spend final hours with him, Jesus got on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. But there was a very important event that had just occurred. Just minutes before Jesus kneeled to wash the disciples' feet, he was sitting at the table and enjoying a last meal together. And this is our topic this morning, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Our main reading will come from Luke 22, and we will start there this morning in Luke 22, starting in the seventh verse. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed, And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have come, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room, there make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. This section of Luke, it starts out by saying, The day, then came the day of unleavened bread. This was the day, according to Exodus chapter 12, that the people of Israel were to recognize the Passover. And according to scriptures in Exodus 12, the people of Israel, they were given specific instructions on what to eat and specifically on how to prepare it, which included unleavened bread. They were to sacrifice the Passover lamb and they were to eat of this specific meal. Recognizing all this was to recognize God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. So Jesus tells Peter and John to go prepare a place for their meal. We have no account that Jesus had a cozy, comfortable home. We have no account that he had a fully functioning kitchen. So Peter and John, they ask a very relevant question, and they said, where do you want us to go prepare this meal? So he told them to go to the city and look for a man carrying a pitcher of water. So at first thought, this is not something common to us. So at first thought, we may think this is a little strange, but there's a few things that we need to consider here. So first of all, water, it was often transported to each home, to each dwelling. There was no running water. There was no connected pipes. There was no 12-inch water main running from, from village to village, from home to home. So often people had to carry their own water. So it was common to see people carrying pitchers of water that they had just drawn from a well. Secondly, this was not the common task of a man. You would see women and children uh, fetching water for their family throughout the day. 
Maybe just in the morning, maybe they had to make several runs to the well. But it was not common to see a man doing this task. So Jesus' instruction to find this man carrying a pitcher of water was something that would stand out to Peter and John as they entered the city. And after they found this man carrying this pitcher of water, Jesus tells them to follow this man. Go directly into the house. And once you're there, go find the master of the house and tell him that the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that my we may have Passover with the disciples. There you'll find this upper room, and it will be set up and prepared for us, and this is where you'll prepare the Passover meal. Verse 13 concludes and says, they prepared the Passover meal. So Peter and John, they've done exactly as Jesus has instructed, and they have now prepared this Passover meal. Now, what's interesting about this situation up to this point in the scriptures is that Jesus is about to institute a memorial service for himself. And his disciples, they don't know. They don't know what is about to happen. They don't know that he is about to reveal himself as the sacrificial lamb. So the disciples, they are preparing a meal. Follow me here. The disciples are preparing a meal to celebrate Passover, which was the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. And Jesus is preparing to create this memorial of his upcoming death that was performed to deliver us from our sins. I want to pause here, and I want to look at the term Passover. We need to look at the term Passover and Passover lamb for a few minutes. The institution of the Passover, it occurs in Exodus 12. Looking over at Exodus 12, up to this point, the Lord had sent nine plagues to to the land of Egypt in an attempt to get Pharaoh to release his people from slavery. We know that throughout those nine plagues, the scripture tells us that Pharaoh's heart continued to be hardened. Essentially, Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, they would go through a horrible plague. Pharaoh would consider letting the people go to save his land and save the people. And then he would change his mind. And then he would change his mind. Moses would approach Pharaoh and tell him that there was going to be another plague. And Pharaoh would ignore the warnings. And then God would bring another plague upon the Egyptian land. Pharaoh would consider letting the people go, and then he would change his mind. And this occurred nine times. And then we have the tenth plague, which was the death of the firstborn. I want to read some of this, and we'll start in Exodus 12 and 3. This is God speaking to Moses, giving him instructions. Exodus 12 and 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. It's important that we understand the similarities of the Passover lamb, which was sacrificed to save the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage to Jesus Christ, who is our sacrificial lamb that saves us from sin, from our own bondage. 
So we look at some of these similarities in Exodus 12 and 5, give specific instructions regarding how to choose a lamb to be sacrificed. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. The most important qualification of the lamb is to be without blemish. And when we consider the term blemish from a human standpoint, to be without blemish is to be without sin. This is important. I can't be the Savior. You can't be our Savior. Why? Why can't you be the Savior? We have a sin problem. We have a blemish. Jesus Christ is truly the only one without a blemish. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was without blemish. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For he made him who knew no sin. 1 Peter 1 and 19 also confirms this saying, But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Another point to note is that the lamb must be a firstborn lamb. Luke 2 and 7 says this about Jesus when he was born. For God, Luke 2 and 7 says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him, for them in the end. And of course we have John 3 and 16, which is a favorite among many of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we know that Jesus was without blemish and he was a firstborn son meeting the qualifications of a Passover lamb. Now take a look at what John makes reference to. So this is John making reference to Jesus. We read of this twice in John uh, 1 in the 29th verse. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the 36th verse, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The Old Testament Passover lamb was a foreshadowing of the better and final sacrificial lamb, who is Jesus Christ. Through his sinless life and his sacrificial death, Jesus became the only one capable of giving people a way to escape death and a hope of eternal life. Jesus Christ is our sacrificial lamb. And it's important that we understand that for a whole host of reasons but especially for the study today. Making that connection is very important as we move into this next section of Scripture. So we'll jump back into our text of the morning in Luke 22. Peter and John, they've just went to the house that Jesus had instructed them, um, and the disciples were going to celebrate the Passover with Jesus. When you think about what's going on here, you think about this section of Scriptures and these events that's going on, it's I think it's just one of those mind-blown type of moments. You've got really, to really put the connection together. You know, these men, they're gathering to observe Passover hours before the fulfillment of Passover. 
with the very man who is fulfilling the Passover. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, is sitting with the disciples, partaking in the celebration of the Passover feast, the old law, all while he is about to reveal himself as the lamb of God and he's going to be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. I find that so interesting. I think it's a really neat series of events. And this is exactly what Peter is referring to in 1 Peter 1. In 1 Peter 1 and 18, says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from the aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish or without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. I don't think the, the disciples really understood what was going on right here. And I don't think that that should surprise us. We, we've studied many scriptures throughout this series that have pointed several instances of, of confusion of the disciples. If you remember some of the scriptures that we, we previously looked at, the, the disciples were confused when Jesus told them that he was going to be betrayed. When he told them that his betrayal was at the table with them, they, they were confused. They wanted to know, who, who was it? Was, is it me? They were confused on why he was washing their feet. Remember Peter? He's like, you're not washing my feet. Didn't understand. There was some confusion going on in these series of events. So it doesn't surprise me that they're unaware of what Jesus is doing as they sit around this table. Let's read verse 15. Back to Luke 22, verse 15. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, With fervent desire. The dictionary tells us, we look at line 2, that the word fervent is defined as exhibiting or marked by great intensity of feeling. Please understand the difference here. You may desire to get a puppy for Christmas. That's a desire that you have. That is different than Jesus fervently desiring to eat this Passover with his disciples. This word fervent greatly intensifies the desire that Jesus was feeling. He had a huge desire. He had an intense desire, a passionate desire, a fervent desire desire to spend this Passover, his last Passover, with the disciples. This is just hours before he's going to be captured and crucified, and he makes a point to say, this is my desire. Remember that question about what you were going to do in your final six hours before you die? You're going to work on your legal documents. You're going to work uh, on, maybe you want to go see a few things, a Grand Canyon, a beautiful mountaintop. You want to visit with family. Not Jesus. He desired to be with his followers, further teaching them of the importance of God's plan. He had a fervent desire to spend his last Passover with the disciples. Move on to verse 17. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, 
He said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This cup that is being referenced here in verse 17, it's not the cup. It's not the fruit of the vine that we reference today. We haven't got to the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's coming here in just a couple of verses. This cup referenced in verse 17 is in reference to the Passover feast. It's references of various cups that were commonly used during the Passover feast, during the tradition, and that's outlined in Exodus 6 for us, but there's traditions of these different cups that are used. The important thing to note here is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is displaying to disciples the importance of adhering to the law. Jesus is observing the old law just like they have always done. And what we'll learn in the next few verses is that Jesus moves away from the old law as he institutes a new commandment in observing his death. Again, I think this raised a few eyebrows in the room as the disciples were accustomed to the Passover celebration. They knew why they did it. They knew when to do it. They knew the the traditions that were involved in the actions that were to take place. But this would have been a little different. And it was different on purpose. And Jesus is going to explain that. Now this brings us to verse 19 where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. I want you to take note in how this is performed. We refer to this as the Lord's Supper. It's referenced as the Last Supper. Uh, It's called a memorial. We often refer to it as the communion service. This morning, 15, 20 minutes ago, we gathered around this table and we partook of the Lord's Supper. We remembered Jesus Christ and his death. We took the bread, we prayed on it, and we passed it for everyone to partake of. We then took the fruit of the vine, we prayed over it, and then we passed it for everyone to partake of. So compare compare the things that we did this morning to what Jesus does with the disciples. Starting in verse 19. And he took the bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks for it, and he gave it to them, saying, Eat saying, this is my body which is given for you. And likewise, meaning in the same manner, he took the cup and he gave it to them to drink, saying, this is my blood which is poured out for you. Let's look over at Mark. Let's see what the book of Mark has to say about the Lord's Supper. Uh, Mark 14, starting in in verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Again, note what Jesus did here. 
Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks for it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Then he took the cup, he gave thanks, and they, they all drank from it, and he said, This is my blood, which is shed for many. Let's look at Matthew. Let's see what Matthew has to say about this. In Matthew 26, starting in the 26th verse, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks for it, and he gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to them, saying, This is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Did you catch a common theme? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give account of the Lord's Supper, and each follow the core practice of partaking of the bread, giving thanks for it, of partaking of the fruit of the vine, and giving thanks for it. People often ask, so what does the Church of Christ believe in? Brothers and sisters, this is a simple answer. We believe in following the principles outlined in the New Testament. We believe in following the Word of God. And then maybe you'll get asked, well, how do you do that? How is that done? What what do you mean by that? The answer, again, is very simple. We look to the inspired Word of God to direct us in how we worship and how the church is organized. We seek to follow the pattern that was set forth by the New Testament church. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly how we conducted the Lord's Supper this morning. Because that is exactly how the scriptures outlines the Lord's Supper to take place. We're following Jesus' example. As we continue on with our main text, I'll ask you a quick question. And remember, you have to remember, Jesus did something that was completely new. First time ever. So I'll ask you this question. Have you ever been involved in a conversation with someone and they've mistaken you for someone else? And they're telling you something and they're going on and on. And they could have swore that you were there. I know you were there. And they're talking about this event and they're going on and on. And at some point you stop them and you say, I have no clue on what you're talking about. I think the disciples are going through this right now. They were used to Passover. But, when, but what Jesus is doing here is very different than anything that they had done. Jesus takes bread, he gives thanks, and he says, this is my body. The disciples had to be wondering, what do you, what do you mean by that? Why are you doing this? They will come to understand this in a short few hours. And of course, Peter, Peter was there that evening. Peter goes on to write about the crucifixion and references exactly what Jesus is teaching them here. 
in 1 Peter 2. He says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, referring to the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. I think the things that Jesus was presenting to the disciples, that it was a bit of a mystery at this time. But they would indeed come to learn of the importance of his death, the necessity of his death, the beauty of his death in the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. We'll move to verse 20. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is Jesus speaking. The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This confirms directly from Jesus' mouth that we are indeed living under a new covenant. There was an old law. The old law referred to the law of Moses. But that's not the covenant that you and I live under today. We no longer live under this old law because why? Because Jesus says, this is my new covenant. We have a new law. Here in verse 20, Jesus says, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, I do think that Jesus is purposely, and I think he has purposely used language that resonates with the disciples. They understand blood. They understand the importance of sacrifices and blood sacrifices through their knowledge of the old law. So Jesus is using terms and references that the apostles, they can really relate to. Now, this isn't anything new. This is, this is always how Jesus taught. When you think about the parables, Jesus was really good at speaking to the people about things they understood when he talked about cattle and he talked about harvesting. We're talking to a lot of farmers and ranchers. He could talk to them in terms of things that they understood. He was really good at giving examples so that people could make connections about his teachings and make things easier to understand. So with the introduction of this new covenant, Jesus talks about blood and how it's poured out to cover our sins in a way that the disciples can really relate to. And we're reminded of this in Hebrews 9, which says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled with the book itself all the people, and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God had commanded you. A few verses later, in the 22nd verse, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Notice the similarity of language of how Moses declares the blood of the covenant in the old covenant to the way Jesus describes the new covenant. Throughout all the ages of time, up to this point in Luke 22, the blood sacrificed of animals were required. It was required to, to roll forward those sins of the people. The disciples, they understood this very well. And at this, time, at this time of the scriptures, they were preparing for the Passover feast. 
which was in memory of the Passover lamb that led to the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. The disciples understood death. They understood that there must be a death. There must be shedding of blood. And that shedding of blood, in turn, what is the shedding of blood? It resembles life. Because of Jesus' blood, we have life. They understood that. And with these events that we had just studied in, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, And although... I'm sure the disciples, they were confused at the time. He used words that they could connect with. He says, this is the new covenant. He said, this is my blood that is going to be poured out for you. So what does this mean for us today? Is this just important today as it was 2,000 years ago? It is. The answer is very simple. The answer is yes. It is just important today. And I want to show you why. I'll spend the rest of my time this morning looking at what Paul had to say about this in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 11 and 23, and we're going to read what the Apostle Paul wrote Um, what he said here, but note he's going to tell us why observing the Lord's Supper is just as important today as as it was back then. Just as important as it was for the early Christians. We'll read 1 Corinthians 11, starting in 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. I want us to take away three important points from this text. And the first one is that this is our reminder. The communion service is meant to be a memorial. What happens at memorial services? When our loved ones die, we often come together for a memorial service. Some call it a funeral, others call it a memorial. But we gather together and we remember their life. We remember how they touched our lives. We remember the wonderful things about them, and we laugh and we cry. The typical funeral service of our loved ones is usually pretty difficult. A lot of folks cry as they think about how important this individual was in their life. My eyes will often swell up at funeral services, but I always try to think of the positives. If this person was a Christian, then this truly is a time of celebration. This person is transitioning from their earthly home to their eternal home, and that is something that we should rejoice in. 
Also, the gathering of friends and distance family is something that we should enjoy. You learn about stories about your loved ones that you've never heard before. You eat and you visit and you eat some more. And you enjoy each other's company. And it's a wonderful time to catch up with family that you haven't seen in a while. The memorial that Jesus is commanding us to do is a reminder and a remembrance of what he did for us when he died on the cross. And remembering the cross is something that we need to do. And Jesus instituted this memorial. He did it for us because he knew that we would need it. He knew that we would need this remembrance. Because we leave this place of worship, and as soon as we get in in our cars, this crazy thing happens. And it's called life. Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday bring hectic family chaos. Sometimes it's organized chaos. Other times we're just trying to survive. If you haven't been assembling with us on Wednesday nights, then you're missing a great opportunity. A great opportunity to receive that midweek pick-me-up. It's a great opportunity to worship God and receive that midweek pick-me-up. I encourage you to take part in our Wednesday night services. Because life happens, right? We get busy, and we work, and we go to school, and we run errands, and we go to soccer practice. And we go to the grocery store and we cook dinners and we fix cars and we plan vacations. We have band practice and we have PTA meetings and we mow lawns and we trim trees. We have business meetings. We work on deadlines. We clean homes. We sit in traffic. We sit in traffic some more. We do laundry and we shop for Christmas and we fix our children's broken toys and we figure out why the internet's not working and we plan birthday parties. We spend hours trying to get the printer to cut to print in color. And the list just grows and it grows. And unfortunately, we can go a day or two or maybe even three and we lose focus on Jesus Christ. You ever set reminders for yourself? Anyone use sticky notes? I like sticky notes. Some of you use uh, the calendar and your phone to set all these reminders for yourself. Some of you, if you pulled out your alarm clock right now, you'd have eight alarms set up just so you could get up one time. So we need reminders. When I was in college, nobody had cell phones back then. I'm aging myself a little bit there. When I needed a reminder, I would write it down on a full sheet of paper. Full sheet of paper, real big. I'd write this reminder, and then I'd fold it up, and I'd stick it right behind my wallet. Because when I got home, what would I do? I'd take my wallet out and put it on the counter. Oh, there's four reminders there. We need reminders. We need a central reminder of the cross. Not the physical cross, but what Jesus did for us on the cross. And Jesus knew this. So he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is our opportunity to put the cares of the world out of our head and focus on the blessings that we enjoy because of Jesus Christ. So when we gather around this table every first day of the week, this is our opportunity to clear our head 
and focus on Jesus. The second takeaway is that the Lord's Supper should be observed weekly. One common question regarding the Lord's Supper that we get, that you have heard, is how often should we do this memorial? How, how, is, is once a year okay? Quarterly is okay, right? Is that good enough? Not if you're going to follow New Testament scriptures. We have evidence in the New Testament of early congregations observing the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. I spoke a few minutes ago about our desire to follow the commandments and teachings outlined in the New Testament. We believe this is God's desire and the best way that we can pattern the worship service. When we have questions, when you have questions, where do you need to turn? To the Bible. It's full of answers. In Acts 2 and 42, we see the communion listed as a central piece of Christian worship. Acts 2 and 42 reads, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. The four activities listed here are four elements of a worship service. One of the key things the early church um, devoted itself to was the breaking of bread which was the Lord's Supper. And the wording suggests these activities occurred when they gathered together. Perhaps the most relevant reference to the frequency of the Lord's Supper occurs in Acts 20 and 7. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. The scripture points out the purpose of their gathering was to break bread and celebrate the Lord's Supper. This passage does not say that the Lord's Supper was the only purpose that they had and doesn't go into detail in the other activities that they performed during uh, their meeting and during the worship service. We know that the early Christians met weekly, and during this time, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. They recognized the Lord's death. And the last point that we... uh, The last point in, in that we partake in the communion service is to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The word proclaim means to declare. When we look at the definition of the word proclaim, you see that it means to declare publicly, typically instantly, proudly or defiantly in each Um, in each speech or writing. Part B of the definition says to give outward indication. Webster says to proclaim means to announce or to show. These scriptures say that partaking in the communion service, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are proclaiming his death. We are outwardly acknowledging what Jesus accomplished on the cross that day. It says, till he comes. We are to continue to do this until the Lord returns. This is not a one and done practice. Years ago, I studied and I took the CPA exam. It took me years to complete and I studied, studied and I took tests and it was a lot of fun. But once I was done, I was done. I threw all of that away. 
I don't have to recertify this test. I took it. I passed it. It's finished. That's not the observance that we're instructed to practice regarding the Lord's Supper. It's not a one and done. We remember his death and the work he accomplished on the cross. For how long? For how long? Till he comes. The communion service is meant to be a reminder, an easy reminder. A simple reminder for believers. We come together, we remind ourselves of the power of the cross and the work that Jesus accomplished that we could not accomplish for ourselves. I want to close this morning emphasizing a couple of things. The early Christians viewed the Lord's Supper as a primary importance of their worship service. To them, the Lord's Supper, it mattered. It wasn't something that they did by happenstance or that they observed spontaneously. It was purposeful, it was meaningful, and it was prioritized. 1 Corinthians 11 and 28 says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If we're going to emulate the first century church, then we too must devote ourselves to the observance of the Lord's Supper. And I am happy that we do that here at this congregation. And we will continue to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Paul reminds us that the Lord's Supper, it's a memorial of Christ's sacrifice for us. And we will remember Christ's sacrifice every time that we assemble on the Lord's Day. And as, just as the early Christians did, and in the exact same manner that Jesus instructed us to. I've appreciated your attention this morning. We'll close with the invitation of the church. If you're not a child of God, then we encourage you to become one today. If you haven't had your sins washed away in the promise of eternal life, then we encourage you to take that step and be baptized, putting away that old life, putting away that sinful life, and begin your new walk with Jesus. The water is ready, and we can take care of that today. Uh, if you need the prayers of the church, you can come forward as well and sit on the front row. We'll be happy to pray with you and for you. Um, please stand as we sing.